prophets were powerful preachers of God's word. They were plain spoken. They were passionate. They showed people the sins which they had committed and called for change on their behalf. It wasn't as if the message of the prophets was somehow vague or somehow you didn't know what you needed to do. When they finished their message, you knew what God wanted from you and you knew how you were supposed to respond to that. This is our third lesson from the book of Micah and I'm going to introduce the lesson with regards to the first point that we're going to discuss. And what a way I want to introduce it is to point out to you that lawsuits are very common today. One of my things that I enjoy is when I go home for lunch is to watch the court TV shows. And I know you say that's just ridiculous, but that's something I enjoy. Many of those lawsuits are nothing more than frivolous attempts to try to get even with somebody else. And you all know that our court system is just clogged with people who are suing one another just because they want to get something from someone else for nothing. You can watch the advertisements for these attorneys, which when I was a child we used to call them ambulance chasers. But they are people who are just out for a lawsuit. But you have to remember, there are some people, though, that when they go to court, they have a legitimate claim. There is a real reason for their going before a judge and before a jury to try to receive some sort of redress for a grievance. You have a plaintiff who has been wronged, and you have a defendant who has done the wrong. Then there is the judge who is to be sure that the law is followed and a jury that is there to render a judgment. The person who is the plaintiff is in the position of proving what he says happened to him did happen. And in order to do that, he must produce evidence. He must produce the uh, convincing and compelling Information that would cause a reasonable mind to say, yes, I have been wronged. It is the place of the defendant to say, no, I did not do that. And here is the reason, here is the proof, or here is where the plaintiff failed to prove what has been charged against me. After the court has been held, a judgment is rendered and penalties must be paid. Now you say, why do you bring all that up? And that is because that's what we're going to study today. In fact, if you'll remember, the book of Micah has three major messages. The first one is that of retribution. The fact that they deserved punishment because of the failures in their political system, the failures in their social system, the failures in their religious system. And then last week we talked about restoration, how God was able to look into the distant future and see a beautiful, wonderful time to come for them when the Jesus, the Christ, would come to this world and provide the forgiveness 
and how that birth of Jesus took place in a little town called Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But this morning, we're going to talk about repentance. How that God will call for repentance on the part of Israel. And we're going to look at three things that are in these verses. And this is not a verse-by-verse study, but we will cover the major points. And we will look, first of all, at God's complaint. Second, we will look at their confession. And then finally, God's compassion. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. And I want you to open your Bibles... In fact, I encourage you, even though we put it on the screen, to have your copy of God's Word in front of you. You may want to read some verses before and after. You may want to mark in your Bible. And here's what God says through Micah. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, the first thing that you observe is both sides are called upon to present their case. Present your case. God has a complaint God has a contention with Israel. And you know, when you start thinking about being at odds with God, that's a very serious thing. There are very few places in the Bible where a person actually vocalizes their disagreement with God. Job is one of those who does. In fact, if you go to Job chapter 9, this is a a whole chapter that's worthy of study itself. But I just want to pick out a couple of verses along through as we look at this chapter. Job begins by saying in verses 1 and 2, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous with God? I know it's possible, I know that it's so, a man can do what is right. But he says, but how can a man be righteous before God? As I stand before the awesome nature of God who has done no wrong and everything he does is perfect and right, how can I stand righteous before him? As the two of us would, as it were, stand in opposition to each other, who's always going to be right and who's always going to be in the wrong? Verses 14 and 15, how then can I answer him? And choose my words to reason with him. For though I would write, were righteous, I would not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. He said, if we're standing there together, I'm not going to try to answer him because anything I say is going to condemn me. Nevertheless, when you drop to verse 19, if it is a matter of strength, indeed he is strong, and of justice, Who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Job looks and says, I really wish, in verse 19, I could have my day in court. I don't think most of us want our day in court. Because like Job, we recognize that we are a failure. 
And yet God here calls on Judah to present their case. When you go to Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 21, a little different context. There it is with regards to the idols. But God says to them, Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. God wants us to stand before him and, let's put it this way, not only give account, but explain ourselves. God challenged them to show any failure on his part. Where has God mistreated them in any way whatsoever? Look with me at verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. See that word testify? For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. God said, I want you to look at me. I want you to tell me where I have mistreated you in any fashion whatsoever. If you and I are going to apply this, where has God mistreated any one of us? Where has God done anything to harm any one of us? But then you get to chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. And then the question comes up is, what would it take to make things right? So let's read verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God is asking, or it's appearing here, what is it that it would take for me to make things right with God, to settle it, to resolve the case? Well, I'd suggest to you they've got a perverted sense of justice already. In their minds, they have this idea that I can somehow buy my innocence. Let's, let's use an illustration. Let's say that two of us are at odds with one another. And let's say that I have damaged something of yours. And you look at the person and you say, what would it take to make things right between us? And you say, I believe you did me about $1,000 worth of damage. Okay, let me pay you $1,000 and then let us be right once again. What would it take to make a person right with God? With what shall I come? Now here's the problem. Some people have this idea that I can offer a sacrifice and that sacrifice that I offer takes care of it and then I'm done. In 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, the 
children of Israel had been sent to utterly destroy the Amalekites. They brought back King Agag. They brought back the best of everything. And their idea was, we're going to sacrifice these to the Lord. And here's what Samuel said. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken or heed than the fat of rams. You mean God is not going to be pleased with these sacrifices? No, he's not going to be pleased with them. What God wanted was obedience. He wasn't wanting these sacrifices. But one a little clearer is found in Isaiah chapter 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of the rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure your iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Do you mean there's a time when God says, I don't want the sacrifices anymore? Absolutely. See, because we somehow have this idea that we can buy off God with what we offer to him. Here's the problem with that. It misunderstands the seriousness of sin. The illustration I used a few moments ago, and you say, well, how much damage have I done to you? I think you've done $1,000 worth of damage. Okay, here's $1,000, and that satisfies it. When you ask the question, how much damage has been done by my sin, it's not a $1,000 sin. It's not a $10,000 sin. It's not a million dollar sin, nor a billion dollar sin. You see, people be, well, want to put a price on it. And the truth is, there's not anything that you and I can come up with to say, for one sin, this will cover it. And it also misunderstands the resolution. When I go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But the best passage in my judgment is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, to address this issue. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Do you know what it cost to pay for sin? Every sin, each sin, the blood of Christ. And God has that complaint. 
Let's look at now at verses 8 and 9. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod and he who appointed it. Now, he has shown you. He has shown you. Here's our problem many times. The answer is in God's word. He's shown it to us, but we've just not gone and found it. In other words, God is saying to them, look it up. And in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul? Yes, it was already there. God wasn't telling them, or Micah wasn't telling them anything new. But He says what you need to do is you need to do justly. That means you treat every man right. You practice righteousness. You don't cheat anybody. You don't lie to anybody. You don't steal from anyone. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You see, what God is asking us to do is not go out and commit a sin and then somehow come back and say, Lord, now what does it cost me for it? God says, I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. That's hard to love mercy. In Luke chapter 6, 35 and 36. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend, hoping nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful just as your Father is also merciful. You see, God sends the rain and the sunshine on both the just and the unjust. God's been very kind and merciful to every one of us. And so must we be to others as well. To walk humbly. You see, in the Bible, there's two ways to walk. There's the way to walk with arrogance, to say that I'm right and no one else is, to say that I'm important and everyone else must come second to me. And the other way to walk is to say God is the most important. And Luke 18, 13 and 14, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat himself on the breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now it would be very easy to skip over verse 9. But his word is, Hear the rod and him who appointed it. Do you know what the rod was for? The rod was for a, a means of discipline. God's complaint says, not only have you offended me, but here is the rod in my hand and I am the one who has appointed it. It has a job to do. They have an incentive 
to want to resolve this. Drop down with me now to verses 14 and 15. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but not save them. And you shall do, and what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And you shall make sweet wine, but not drink wine. It's almost like Malachi says, it's like a man who puts his wages into a bag with holes. Here's a man who goes out and works, and it does not prosper. God said, I'm not going to prosper you. You want to be blessed? Resolve this case. Resolve it. I want to ask, does God have a complaint against us? Well, I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm not just talking about the state of Tennessee. I'm not just talking about the city of McMinnville. I'm not just talking about the congregation at Bobby Branch. Me, individually. Does God have a case against me that needs to be resolved? Which leads me to chapter 7. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. As Micah then presents how they're going to resolve it. Woe to me, or woe is me. For I'm like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean grapes, vintage grapes. There's no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net that they may successfully do evil with both of their hands. The pressed asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire. So they scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and of your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. I want you to see the big picture here. He uses this phrase, Woe is me. He's speaking for the nation. Look at us. Look at our failures. Look what we have done. If you go back to Isaiah, which is a parallel to Micah. In chapter 6 and verse 5, he began to privilege to see the awesome nature of God. And he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Look at me, I recognize my own sinfulness. That's what woe is me acknowledges. But then he begins to enumerate all of the failures that the people had. This is a confession of what we have done. When I go to the book of Ezra, chapter 9, and he does very much the same thing, 
He said, I arose from my fasting, having torn my garment and my robe. I fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and said, Oh, my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have grown higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Lord, I'm going to fall down in front of you, not stand up in front of you. The reason why is because... God, we are a sinful people. You keep on going. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been guilty, very guilty. For our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered to the hands of kings of the lands, to the sword, to the captivity, the plunder, to humiliation. You see, here's the problem. You look at ourselves, you see our sin, but what are you going to do with it? In the Bible, it is essential for a person to acknowledge their sin, to own up to it. When I was a teenager, I played basketball for a little while. I know I was a lot thinner, but wasn't any taller. But one of the things that you had to do when you committed a foul when I was a teenager was you had to raise your hand. You had to acknowledge that you were the one who committed that foul. If you did not raise your hand, you would get a technical called on you. I don't know how many of you remember that. I think that was a good thing. A person has to own up to what they've done. When I go to the Bible, 1 John 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, 5, David said, I acknowledged my sin unto you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, the first part of chapter 7 is Micah on behalf of the people saying, God, we are sorry. Look at us. We recognize our own sinfulness. Well, how's God going to respond to that? Let's look at chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 7 and then verses 18 through 20, and then we'll bring the lesson to a close. He said in verse 7, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. What powerful words. Now dropping down to verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. God forgives the penitent soul. He's just, he's fair, and he's merciful. You see, you have people with whom the Lord has a complaint. And then you have people who say, 
Lord, I'm sorry. I've sinned. And here's what God says. Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. When Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites, they repented. And then Jonah 4 verse 2, so he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's the God we serve. And Jesus in Luke 15 talked about three lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. And he put it like this in verse 7. I say to you likewise, there shall be joy or more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. When just one person settles with God on God's terms. Now God's case against Israel was justified. Start reminder here. God's case against us is justified. When God looks at us and sees our sin and he calls us to account before him, God's justified. Too many people, though, are trying to seek the wrong way out of their sins. Too many people have this idea that rather than my acknowledging my sin to God rather than my demonstrating a penitent heart. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. But here's the problem. God is, as it were, the plaintiff. We are the defendant. And all he is doing is asking us Make it right. Make it right. But here's the issue. God does not want there to be an issue. He doesn't want there to be a controversy. Doesn't want there to be a contention. He wants to resolve it. First Timothy 2, 4, who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Second Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So here's the question. Here's the Lord's invitation. Will you come to God on His terms? If you're not a Christian, that may be you've never become a member of the Lord's church. Here's what it's going to take for you to resolve things with God. You're going to have to believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son. John 8 verse 24 Hebrews 11 and verse 6, Romans 4, 20 and 21. We could give you many other passages. You must repent of your sins. That means to be sorry for and want to change the things that you've done wrong. Luke 13, verse 3, Acts 17, verse 30, many other passages. Confess the name of Christ, that you believe that He is the Son of God. 
Matthew 10, 32 and 33, and then to be baptized for the remission of your sins. When you go down in that water, you are raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4 through 6. The vast majority of this audience has already done that. But you see, like Israel, God's covenant people, they continued to stray and turn and go the wrong way. And here is the challenge for you. We come back and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And you see, God's not going to just make us a hired servant. He's going to put a robe on our shoulders, a ring on our hand, and kill the fatted calf. Because God lovingly welcomes us home. Would you come while we stand and sing?